This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Reverend Gabriel Salguero is the founder and president of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, NALEC. He also pastors a church in Orlando called The Gathering Place. His wife, Jeanette, is also ordained, and they share in the leadership of both NALEC and The Gathering Place. He has a really interesting academic and theological background. I think he'll talk a bit about that. I asked Gabe to talk about the complexity of Latino politics, especially on the politics of poverty, the role of religion, and the development of NALIC. Gabe, we're glad to have you with us. So nice to meet each of you, even if virtually, and thanks for the honor uh, for letting us share a little bit of Latino faith engagement. I am a member of the Hispanic evangelical community in the U.S. I am a Jersey Rican. That means I was born in New Jersey of Puerto Rican parents. My wife, Jeanette, is a New Yorican. That means she's a Puerto Rican, born in New York of Puerto Rican parents. And our two sons, one is a Jersey Rican and one is a New Yorican. Uh, so we've divided that equally. Uh, NALIC has a broad coalition of Latino, Latina evangelicals. So it's Mexican, uh, Colombian, Argentine, Venezuelan, uh, so forth, Dominican, so forth and so on. Uh, Chicano, you know, they each self-identify in different ways. And so we're respectful of how they self-identify. Um, NALIC has been around. NALIC is the acronym of the coalition, National Latino Evangelical Coalition, for about 11 years. David is a humble person, but he's the first to receive our uh, anti-poverty and hunger champion award some years ago uh, when he was doing uh, his work at Bread for the World, both as an economist and faith advocate. And so David is, as he's quite rightly said, a friend um, and a leader. My Before I was the head of NALIC, I was the uh, director of the Institute of Faith and Public Life at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, I did my PhD work at Union Theological Seminary. Um, I worked with a, a, a gentleman called James Cohn. I was his teaching assistant yeah, I, um, before he passed. Uh, and another gentleman called Larry Rasmussen, who's a kind of earth ethicist and a wonderful woman uh, called Emily Towns before she went on to be at Vanderbilt. She's a womanist scholar. Uh, I was also the archivist for Ada Maria Isasa Diaz Mujeristas papers at the Union Theological Seminary Library. So anything she ever read, I wrote, I read and are archived for the Union Seminary uh, Library when I was a PhD student. I am an Assemblies of God pastor. And so you will find very few evangelicals who did uh, PhD work at Union. Uh, but here, here's one. Uh, um, I'm not the only one, actually. There are several others. Um, Michelle Torres, Samuel Sullivan, and others, but and and a lot of that training in kind of liberation theologies formed my 
my public work um, uh, in Latino, Latina uh, liberation theologies and, and other liberation theologies for my kind of public engagement. But so did my formation in a Pentecostal indigenous church, Latino Pentecostal church. My father and mother uh, have been ordained for 41 years. My mother was one of the first Latina ordained in the Pentecostal tradition in the 70s. And she's still very much ordained and she's the pastor of the church I grew up in. Uh, I think she was ordained in 1978. Um, and so that's my tradition. Jeanette is also ordained in the Assemblies of God tradition. Uh, her, her, She went to Duke and her formation is both in organizational psychology uh, administration and Alec is about 3,000 Hispanic evangelical congregations across the country. Um, and we are committed to the common good and public advocacy from a gospel-centered perspective. I, I think that's enough biography um, for now, but I, I, especially for the people who are GTU and other places, I, I thought I'd bring some of the more theological, uh, social ethics background, lest people assume he's an evangelical, he hasn't engaged other thinkers. Um, so I wanna, I'm not, I'm not confused, I'm just integrated. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanna say that um, the work of Nalek is deeply indebted to some of the work that David Beckman and Bread for the World and, and honestly, uh, the, the theological formation of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops and their moral theology. Um, much of the Catholic social teaching has informed Nalik's uh, uh, approach to public theologies and, and to public policies. And so we're deeply in, uh, indebted to uh, Catholic social teaching and Dorothy Day and others who, who, who have had a real um, influence in my personal uh, work. Uh, my master's degree work was on Martin Luther King Jr. as a public advocate and Pedro Albizu Campos, who is a Puerto Rican uh, uh, lawyer, independentista who fought for Puerto Rican independence. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about Hispanicity or Latinidad in America. I'll give you that kind of 30,000 foot view. If you already know it, then indulge me. Um, there's things that... Uh, I just want to make sure we're we're using some working language. Let let me just uh, talk just about a few uh, statistical matters that you may or may not know. And I'm taking most of this kind of statistics either from the census, from Pew, or from PRRI, uh, Public Religion Research Institute. We start with the assumption that we are not a monolith. Okay, and, and we're changing. We are changing. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm giving you a comparative, comparative analysis between the 2013 Pew and the 2018-2019. On the right, on my right, is the 2013 Pew numbers where Catholics were 55% uh, of the Hispanic population in the U.S. Now they're 47%. They've actually had a reduction. And these are people who self-identified as such. Um, Protestants are 24%. They used to be 22%. Of the Protestants, that's both mainline and evangelical. Of that group, 67% self-identify as evangelical or born again. Okay, so 67% of the 24% of the Protestants. Then you have, uh, there's 1% Latino, Latina Mormons, 
Jewish, atheist, agnostic. And actually the fastest growing group used to be Hispanic, Latino, Latina evangelicals, but it is now uh, the religiously non-affiliated. That's the fastest growing group among uh, Latinos and and Latinas. And and so that's a a sense. The last um, census put Latinos in the U.S. at around 60 million around 60 million. That was uh, actually the mid census. We're talking about 2015. We'll see what the 2020 census brings to us. But just for a sense, if Latinos in the US were a country by itself, they would be the second largest uh, Latino country in the world. Okay, so there are more Latinos in the US than there are in Paraguay and Uruguay combined, for example and certainly more than Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic combined. So that's just a sense. Of that group, we're talking uh, over 12 million um, self-identify as evangelical and over 28 million self-identify as Catholic. So those are the two largest group. And the not affiliated is is close to uh, uh, 11 million, according to the last census. So just for us to get a, a sense. This is, I think a good starting place for us to, to, it may be obvious, but I need to state it for reasons of mental health and also for reasons that we, we were on a call today with the white house, with Latino faith leaders in the white house faith-based office. And one of the things we try to tell policymakers over and over is that Latinos, Latinas are not a monolith, right? Like no, no group is a monolith. And, and I, obviously this was a group of Hispanic evangelicals that were on the call with the White House, but even Hispanic evangelicals uh, are not a monolith as, as Hispanic Catholics are not a monolith. Hispanic Jews are not a monolith. No group is a monolith, but it needs to be said <laughs> over and over again, because I think that when we start creating pan identities as what happens in the U S with immigrant groups, right? The pan Asian identity, the pan Latino uh, uh, identity, we often lose nuance, right? So if we have a pan-Asian identity, right, we call Asian Americans, well, there's Japanese, there's Korean, there's Chinese, there, there's Tibetan, and, 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 and so some of that needs to be articulated. And it's, and it's just, so with the pan-Latino-Latina identity, right, Mexican, uh, Puerto Rican, Colombian, Guatemalan, Salvadorian, uh, Cuban, so forth, U.S.-born Latinos, which, by the way, two thirds of Latinos living in the United States are U.S. born, right? So the majority of the group is not born outside the United States. The majority of the group is U.S. born um, and and for the most part uh, are either bilingual and the younger groups being English dominant and sometimes monolingual. So I just want to say that uh, the largest three groups, faith groups, are, are Catholic, uh, as I said, um, 28 million, uh, Protestant slash evangelical. So we're talking 13 million or so. Uh, remember, I I keep saying or so because census often undercounts Hispanic populations, right? Uh, especially undocumented p- uh, persons. And so that's why I'm being very careful uh, in saying that because every person counts uh, in the theology that I ascribe to. Um, and so, and then of course, uh, the 11 or so million of religiously uh, non-affiliated, okay? The world. Here, here was an analysis that PRRI took on his how Hispanic faith groups viewed the Trump administration. 
just to get an idea, because sometimes we have flat depictions of Hispanicity or Latinidad, okay? And you'll see that that 57% of Hispanic uh, Protestants approved of how Trump was doing. I, I, I just off the record, I was not part of that 57%. Uh, and so... Um, <laughs> And 58% of, uh, so I'm, I'm looking at my tribe right now, the Hispanic Protestants, which of which 67% are evangelical. More than half approved of how Trump handled the economy and approved of him as president. 45% approved of how he handled or his administration handled racial justice protests. And 38% handled the, how the Trump administration uh, responded to the coronavirus pandemic. This is interesting because if you look at Hispanic Catholics, not so much, um, right? 27% uh, approved of him as a president, 42% uh, approved of how the president handled the economy, uh, 30% approved of how he handled racial justice, and uh, 29% approved of how he responded, his administration, to the coronavirus. What's interesting about this graph and the reason I chose it as one of the early ones is because it gives you kind of a spectrum of hispanicity uh, and how faith impacts how they view policy, in this case, an anecdotal look at a particular administration, the most recent administration. Look at how Hispanic religiously unaffiliated compare to Hispanic Protestants. They're almost always on opposite not almost always in this chart, always on opposite uh, spectrums. If we had, if we had a chart on immigration, uh, there would be much more synergy across these things. Uh, but this is an interesting thing to show how uh, faith, dogmas, doctrine, ideology impacts how we look at at presidential administrations and, and their responses to our communities or uh, national or national crises in the case of racial justice and in the case of, of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, of course, in the case of the economy. Can I just be honest with you? Uh, that's, that's all I know how to do is the, the 58 on the handling of the economy when I did this research surprised me, it, especially since most of the work on the that I've done with religious leaders, which is Catholic bishops and Latino, Latina, evangelical denominational leaders, uh, has been around earned income tax credit, child tax credit, SNAP, WIC. It doesn't reflect this. And so what I want to add to this layer is that often the national surveys of grassroots is not the same as if you did a national service of what is often called grass tops leaders, denominational leaders. So there is often a chasm between where Latino, Latina, and let me say, I should say this right up front. I know the term Latinx. I know it very well. Uh, you will notice that I do not use it because although most Latinos, Latinas are aware of it, according to surveys, only 3% use it. Uh, and so uh, it is that 3% is the 3% that I mostly work with in the academy and in public policy. But the term Latinx is not deeply embedded in the Latino Latina community. It is usually in academia, 
uh, and in public policy circles and in governance. Let me, here's another kind of taxonomy uh, that, that helps us understand Hispanic ideological makeup. So Latinos and Latinas or Hispanic Americans, 37% identify as Democrats, 25% as independents, and 21% as Republicans. And so it's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing that how, and this, this can switch from election to election. For example, in the Latino evangelical community, uh, President Obama won the Latino evangelical vote both times he ran, as did P President George W. Bush won the Latino evangelical vote both times he ran. I believe uh, um, Hillary made a, may have won a sl slim majority over Trump when she ran uh, against him. But it, it, it's a pretty diverse group. Hispanic Catholics mirror to a great deal the self-identification of the larger Hispanic American demographic. 41% are Democrats, 20% independent, 19% are Republicans. Hispanic Protestants are usually the most uh, politically conservative of them. 28% Republican, uh, um, Democrat, 32% Republican, 31% independent. And look how large the independent group is among Hispanic Protestants. And oftentimes I did an interview in the New York Times uh, a few years ago where we were, where I was quoted as saying we're the quintessential swing voter in terms of the faith voter. So that's um, important because we tend, we, now I'm not speaking for me as an individual, but our Hispanic evangelical tend to be socially conservative, but progressive on economics, housing, immigration, and other things. And the, of the group, the res religiously unaffiliated Hispanics, um, uh, are the largest dem uh, Democrats, democratically identified, 46%, 22% independent, and 7% Republicans. This is important because this is the fastest growing group among Hispanic millennials and Gen Zs. And so that, that's important for, for political pundits and those who are analyzing it. Hispanic Protestants are much more likely to say they are ideologically conservative, almost 40%. Hispanic Catholics, at tw almost 20%. And those who are religiously affiliated at 12%. Okay. And this comes from, from PRRI. Let me give you one policy issue that is economics based immigration, right? I just finished saying that about 66% of Latinos, Latinas in the US are US born. That means a third, a full third are immigrants. Um, so look at this very interesting data. 35% of Hispanic Americans support building wall. Surprised by that. At the southern border with Mexico to keep immigrants out, right? <laughs> Nearly half of those are Hispanic Protestants compared to 34% Catholics and 15% of Hispanics who are religiously unaffiliated agree. Additionally, 45% of Hispanic Protestants support a law preventing refugees from entering the country. This is the, the, the ban on refugees, which got zeroed out in the previous administration and is presently, they're trying, uh, we're advocating for it to, to cap to be at 125,000 or, or at historic levels. Um, there's been an oral agreement, although the present administration has not signed that yet. And so it's still not there. Um, 
And so these, these are things that are important as people ask about Hispanic faith voters and Hispanic uh, public engagement in general. Here's a view of government. And remember, this is important because uh, immigrant groups have a varied history on government, whether they lived in Venezuela or Cuba or in Mexico or, or in Puerto Rico or, or in Argentina, um, República Dominicana under Trujillo and others. And so that, that history informs uh, how some Hispanic groups see the view of government and the role of government, especially when it comes to public assistance. And the side, Hispanics are more likely than the general public to say they would rather have a bigger government providing more services than a smaller government with fewer services. That's 75% of Hispanics say this, while 19% rather have a smaller government with fewer services. So contrast that to the general U.S. public. We're almost at twice the rate asking for larger government with more social services. Uh, and and that's that's significant when you start talking about uh, public policy documents is, is issued by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, by our coalition, the National Latino Evangelical uh, Coalition, by the Latino Christian Churches Together, which is predominantly mainline but not uniquely. And you'll see some of our public documents on the view of government, whether that's SNAP, whether that's WIC, whether that's public assistance, or global, right? Uh, USAID, uh, development, uh, um, that view, this view of government is deeply reflected in the public pronunciations of some of these larger Latino, Latina uh, faith groups. Although there are others like Libre Initiative and others who actually feel that that, that should be the role of, of the church and not government, although I'm not sure how they articulate the church doing all of that. Let me say another layer of the last five years that have been important to Latino faith engagement, particularly in the areas of, of poverty and economics. Uh, in the, quite frankly, in the last 30 years, the Hispanic boom uh, via immigration and birth. So one out of every four children born in the U.S. is Hispanic. One out of every four children born in the U.S. is Hispanic. One out of every two is a BIPOC, a Black, Indigenous, or person of color, okay? And so one out of every four children, we are a young demographic. Our median age is under 28 years of age. Um, and the demographic boom has come either through immigration or through uh, uh, having children or, or fam uh, family expansion. And so that has, has uh, significantly impacted the migration from Central and South America, the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and increasingly from Venezuela, given the crises, political and economic crises uh, in Venezuela, have been significant. And from Puerto Rico, although that's not immigration, that's migration because Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens uh, because of Hurricane Maria and the recent earthquakes. And, and that is a revolving door migration, uh, cross-reference 1950s uh, Puerto Rican revolving door migration. For those of you who, who've read some of uh, 
those books about Puerto Rican revolving door migration. And so all of those factors given to the demographic boom, one out of every four children, has made Latinos and Latinas a political uh, force to be reckoned with. The grassroots historically are, are dealing with survival. Right? <laughs> Not policy nuance, right? They, we, we need to get the check to pay the rent this week, right? When all of these kind of nouveau white evangelicals started talking about lament, we were like, what took you so long? <laughs> uh, you know, now lament is trendy. You know, let's lament. Let's all lament. You know, and we're like, my goodness, have you read of the Chinese Exclusion Act or, or chattel slavery or segregation? I mean, we're going to lament now? No, I agree. We need to lament, but it's long overdue. And so the grassroots are not having conversation about Gustavo Gutierrez. They're not having conversations about the political economy of misery, as Emily Towns has written. They, they, these so what they're the translation has to be how does SNAP impact Maria Josefina Juan who worship Sunday? How does a major budget cut impact those people? Or how does it impact the growth of the soup kitchen line, right? And so here, this is not a small point, which most uh, uh, policy and, and theologians miss. Most Latino uh, politically engaged pastors, I'm, now I'm talking about, I'm not talking about philosophers, economists, they get to policy advocacy from direct service. So their entry point is, man, that soup kitchen is getting longer. Man, there are more people who we have to, out of our benevolent fund, help them pay because social security is not enough for them to pay their mortgage at the end of the month. And so that realization from direct service leads them to advocacy. That's how we've mostly worked with the grassroots. The, the, so I don't have to preach to them that during COVID-19, the soup kitchen line got longer. I don't have to tell them that because they live it, <laughs> right? And so now the, now the next step is to tie how policy can help them serve those communities to which they feel called. That is a larger step because there's a historical distrust in some Latino communities of government. And so this kind of work, because of the distrust and because of language barriers and cultural barriers, makes grass tops work I will say this, the mainline Protestants are ahead and the Latina, Latino Catholics are ahead on this. And the truth is, if Latino, in opinion, not fact, this is not a fact, this is straight opinion. The Latino church could learn a lot more from the African-American church in this regard. They're light years ahead of us. There is an ongoing debate on about US evangelicalism, right? and who's going to define its policy priorities in the future. This is a generational debate, younger evangelicals. This is a racial ethnic by, you know, black indigenous people of color who self-identify as evangelical. Uh, and this is a kind of political ideological debate. The historic white evangelical institutions in the US sphere are 
National Association of Evangelicals, Christianity Today, Wheaton in terms of Christian evangelical colleges and Gordon Conwell in terms of institutions, right? And all of those were founded, you know, before the 70s, actually before the rise of the religious right. And when the religious right came in, they got increasing traction in those historically rooted, longstanding white evangelical organizations. They are they were intelligent enough to know that if they had wanted any semblance of legitimacy, they had to recruit Latino, African-American, Asian, millennial. And that is causing some some negotiation around racial justice, around around SNAP, around WIC, around earning income tax credit, around USAID, around foreign policy uh, in the Northern Triangle. The truth is that white evangelicalism has had a strong influence on issues of abortion, same-sex marriage, um, Middle East, in Latino evangelicalism in America. A strong influence, possibly a monopoly. Some of that has changed, especially around the coast, right? East coast, West coast, and urban centers. But on issues like immigration, on issues like housing and economic development, that is where Latina, Latino voices are coming to the fore. The presentation of economic theory, I didn't say the economic theory in of itself, I said the presentation of the economic theory in Latino faith circles, given the economic upheaval of Venezuela, in, and the history of the first group of uh, Peter Pan migrants from Cuba and the bankruptcy and the junta placed over Puerto Rico that people like Eric Lecomte and Jubilee USA have been raising, I'm getting really into the weeds, um, is making the conversation around economic investment Uh, difficult, more difficult than in years past. Uh, I don't know what opinions are among U.S. Uh, Puerto Ricans in the U.S. about about the plight of the island and how it's being handled. The the it's one of equity. I think it's a question of equity. Puerto Rico is not more in debt than Texas. The debt of Puerto Rico is not larger than Texas. But Texas doesn't have a junta. Puerto Rico does. Mm -hmm. Detroit went bankrupt, (laughs) but it did not have imposed on it the economic regulations that Puerto Rico does. For that matter, the state I live in has probably greater debt than than the island of Puerto Rico. And I live in Florida uh, or New York State or California. Is that that true as a proportion of the economy? The, The point is, that the, that when Latinos go bankrupt, we're irresponsible. When other groups go bankrupt, they need help. And so the narrative, the political philosophy tied to the economic theory is deeply racialized. Mm-hmm. 
And so how do we, and, and this I get direct, right? This, uh, let, let's take uh, community development block, grant, block grants, CDBGs. CDBGs, do they go to the governor or do they go to the mayor? In Puerto Rico, they go to the governor, but in other states, they go directly to the municipalities. And so these are the distinctions of, by the way, not just Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin, the territories, right? And, and so these are the issues that, that require a level of analysis, both on both economic theory and how race is tied to economic theory. The Equality Act has the Latino Evangelical Church in an uproar. Yeah. It, it just, I, as soon as it passed the House, Jeanette and I Was probably it just died. the affirmation of gay people? Is no, that- no. It's the, it's the, it's the concern of Pell Grants to Christian colleges and universities. It's the concern of um, federal aid to churches that run Office of Refugee Resettlement. Our direct services. Our, dire- our direct services that have federal funding. So foster care, uh, hun- hunger relief, natural disaster relief organizations, uh, private Christian colleges and universities that receive Pell Grants and FAFSA. Um, the list is long, but those are the main ones um, that they're concerned about. Okay. Although you, that same group would say, we, we are for fairness for all. And they're, therefore against, uh, they're against discrimination for LGBTQ plus people but they're concerned about the lack of religious exemption in the Equality Act. So let me talk about priority issues. Uh, now, now I'm getting more to policy issues. I think that what the first thing we, we, before I get to policy issues is approach. Latino faith approaches, okay? The first hurdle that we face, and now I'm doing Latino faith in general, and then in particular, Latino evangelicalism, which is my area of expertise and, and, and where I live. There's a lack of accessibility to policy analysis. With the exception of the Latino Catholic Church, most Latino indigenous faith organizations require to subcontract their policy analysis to partners. And so while we may have the larger numerical people to mobilize, we don't have the experts unless it's in partnership. Even the Latino Catholics are doing it through the larger U.S. Conference of Catholics. It's not a uniquely Latino analysis of the EITC. It's not, it's not a Latino analysis of, of fair housing. It's not a, right? It's a larger, right? And then we have to kind of parse through what are the impact for African-Americans, Asians, Latinos, poor whites, Appalachia, so forth. That, that work, that, that, that's going to take some time because most of the organizations don't have an in-house policy person working on the Hill, getting them the day-to-day information, right? And so people want to talk about policy when there's a major hurdle around access to policy information and trustworthy contextualized translation of the policy implications for those people they seek to reach. If you're asking about priorities, 
most people think that immigration is a is the number one policy priority. It is not. It's actually economics. Before COVID, it was poverty, uh, wages, housing. Now, post-COVID, it's COVID, 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 and then uh, economics. Uh, those things are not disconnected, obviously. Okay, and so. If when when Latino faith people are polled, overwhelmingly immigration is not the top issue, mm. even though people think it is. It's usually economics. Immigration is usually fourth or fifth in national polls of Hispanics. However, it's the thing we're listened to the most on. Mm. That's why we get to go. If I speak about economics, I'm a voice of many. If I speak about immigration, I'm the national leader. Living wage, child tax credits, earned income tax credit. Second, housing, affordable housing and access to affordable housing. Third, education. You know, to quote Jonathan Kozel, savage inequalities, the disparity between quality access to quality education. We still live in a in a Juan Crow and Juanita Crow educational system. Okay. Criminal justice reform. A lot of work being done on unequal sentencing for similar crimes across racial uh and then probably immigration. Again, why then is it seen that Latino faith groups only talk about immigration? That's because that's the only sound bites media and others play. Because when we're talking about other stuff, they give the mic to somebody else. It is not because we don't care. We're not informed. We're not passionate. Right. And so there is an issue between policy advocacy and messaging and messengers that needs to be kind of uh, 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 filtered, right? Because just because you don't see these groups leading doesn't mean it's not part of their policy priorities. It's just historically the table or the, the platform or microphone has not been given to those groups. It is changing. It is changing. Uh, and, and, and there's some progress on that. So let's go down these things, right? So you're talking about economics, right? You're talking about living wage. For, you know, uh, we did a living wage campaign, right? $15 an hour. We did that, okay? Probably six years ago in New York, or maybe more than seven or eight years ago in New York. Uh, we were part of a living wage campaign. Actually, with Latino mainline and the African-American church. Okay. It was led by a Latino councilman, a Puerto Rican Pentecostal councilman from the Bronx. Uh, um, and so those issues of, of living wage, of paid family leave, of earned income tax credit, the leaders are doing, the grassroots are, are just amening because they're living the realities, but they don't have the policy you know, that's why I, when I always go to these policy meetings, I always say, no, I need a one pager that's digestible that I can preach from my from my pulpit in five minutes or less. 
I, I need a five minute talking point that is easily digestible and translatable from my pulpit on Sunday morning. Okay. So if we talked about those four issues, and I think also international aid would be tied with the immigration. If we talked about those issues, I need to underscore that there is a vast distinction between grass tops involvement and grassroots involvement because the grassroots is overwhelmingly informed about immigration. Hmm. They don't need a policy debrief on immigration. They don't need somebody from DC to tell them, this is how immigration affects you because they live it every day. (laughs) They may need a debrief on how the budget impacts how much they get from SNAP or WIC. That That connection is not made as easily. What is NALIC doing? What is it? We don't, they don't know. So, okay. you know, how, how do you work? What are you trying to achieve? So NALIC is Nas- National Latino Evangelical Coalition. It's a coalition of Hispanic evangelical congregations working from a gospel-centered perspective for the common good. And so we do several things. We educate on policy that impacts our folks. We advocate and we mobilize. Those three things, educate, advocate, and mobilize around the issues that are on, in the policy space. We do other things that are squarely in the, in the direct service space or in the leadership development space. But in the policy space, we educate, we advocate, and we mobilize. So we're part of the kind of uh, advocacy for EITC, CTC, uh, paid family leave. We're, we're on all those coalitions. We have received grants, private grants to do that advocacy work. We partner with the Circle of Protection. For over 10 years, we've advocated for bipartisan, common sense, humane immigration reform. We, we were the first evangelical coalition in the country not the first evangelical, but the first evangelical national coalition to take a stand against the death penalty, to publicly oppose the death penalty. No other evangelical organization has done that. We're still the only one. one. Uh, And we did that several years ago. Um, And so we advocate for criminal justice reform. um, And we've been doing that for about six years. Um, On COVID-19, we're working to for the COVID-19 uh, legislation to be approved with some permanent uh, uh, permanency around EITC and CTC. Um, and, and we've mobilized around that. We've done some calls with senators and congressmen and women uh, to make sure they know our perspective on it. Um, we, we, we have uh, in COVID-19 talked not just about the disproportionate impact on Latinos, but also how are we going to fund U.S. aid in a way that responds to the global uh, pandemic? And our strength is that we're good at grass tops and excellent at grassroots mobilization. Every time there was an immigration mobilization by the evangelical immigration table, the largest group was always now like 400, 500 people visiting the Hill. And so we're very good at moving large groups of people um, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time. If people ask you what diff- what ha- what impact has Nalik made, what would be your top impact story? And then you really were very visible during the 2020 election. You got a lot of press, a lot of uh, 
attention from candidates on both sides. Uh, what do you learn from that? Oh, that fame is fleeting. <laughs> what? The fame, fame is fleeting. <laughs> <laughs> that at the strike of midnight, the carriage turns into a pumpkin. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, so here's what I, I learned, uh, all joking aside, that people know that Hispanic evangelicals are quintessential swing voters. In states like Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, especially the Lehigh Valley, like Allentown and Philadelphia, uh, Florida, uh, Colorado. And so I think that it's not so much our size, which are about, you know, like I said, 12 million, 13 million, whatever, you know, depending who's counting. It's where we are. We're in swing states. They don't call me because of anything else but because that Hispanic evangelicals and Hispanic Catholics could be determinative in the swing states. And we are historically more independent than other Latinos. The second thing I would say is that I learned that if you're going to sustain a movement and get policy across, you have to work bipartisan in this political context. The inertia is amazing. Is is overwhelming. It's it's overwhelming, and uh, and in the last several years, bipartisanship has been almost impossible because people, because of demonizing rhetoric, because of racialized over for a lot of reasons. So I I hope that that bipartisan will be able, especially on things like infrastructure and economics, given the COVID-19 legislation reality. I also discovered that NALEC, while it is growing, we have a lot of work to do internally among Hispanic evangelicals mm -hmm. and that it comes at a high price, at a high price. Death threats, uh, uh, no. yeah, it comes at a high price. And so we've had to have armed guards. We've had to have police escort for my children to school. Uh, I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on, on sanctuary cities and immigration. And my kids had to, had to have police escorts and at our church. It, 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 that the work of justice should not be romanticized. I think is is what that that a 15 minute soundbite on CNN or Telemundo and Univision is not the real story. I also learned that that we need multiracial coalitions to get work done. You need multiracial coalitions. America is increasingly pluralistic and diversified. And and while we're the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, we work with uh, Barbara Williams Skinner and the African-American pastors. And we and we worked with, with the Poor People's Campaign and, and William Barber. You know, you, you, it, it, the, the, the problems are so systemic and so deep that they have to be multiracial and multigenerational um, and multi-faith, quite frankly. You, you, have to, you have to reach it for issues that are... Uh, uh, almost intractable. Uh, 
the successes of Nalik, I think I, I, I'm, things I'm most proud of is uh, I'm proud of what we did on DACA. We did a national campaign where we did seven states. And um, yeah, I'm proud of that. I am. You know, these are kids. And uh, I'm proud of our work um, with, with unaccompanied alien children. And, and having our churches house them and reunite them with their parents, 600 of them. This was, I'm talking back to in the Obama administration. Um, uh, so I'm proud of that work. Uh, I think that's that was a real um, blessing. I'm part of some of our more local work uh, for living wage in some, some, chap, some local chapters that we got to win in, in some city campaigns and some, and some statewide uh, campaigns it's been we've been successful i i'm i'm proud that latino and latina evangelicals have a higher profile than the last than when we began i think that that invisibility is not as big of a challenge as before equity in platform is a challenge but invisibility is not a challenge when you're a young organization, you if you don't have the support, you usually go down in three to five years. You know, we're over a decade old now. And so that uh, that that sustain that it's a sustainable movement, um, I think, is is and that we speak to a breadth of issues and that now p- people go to us right now. People ask, hey, what are Latino evangelicals thinking about this where that was not even a question before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so like this, you know, a Latino evangelical talking to graduate students, think about 10 years ago, that would happen on public policy, on poverty on immigration, or it's just, there's increasing literature out there. Uh, Pew is doing stuff, Barna's doing stuff, PRRI is doing stuff, even the media, which is by far the slowest. 10 years ago, New York Times never even heard what a Latino evangelical was. That. It was like, what planet is that from or whatever, you know, or, or, or the Atlantic or whatever. But now they're doing pieces and PBS is doing. So the invisibility, that's important because whether it's NALIC or another Latino evangelical organization, that voice is in the public sphere on important issues. Hey, can I say this has been amazing? And I am honored that my dear friend, David Beckman, uh, has given us the opportunity to share whatever limited information we had. And I, w- I was glad I was able to share both theological and kind of more pragmatic uh, things. I am so glad that each of you is investing in this type of conversation. We need more people who, who are thoughtful in this space, no matter where they come down on the issue, at least they're thoughtful. And, uh, and, and I couldn't think of a more uh, qualified faculty person than David Beckman. And so I'm honored. And I know Jeanette and I, who value David as a friend and as as a leader, are thankful for each of you. If you ever want to reach out to us, I think she put the uh, email on the chat. We're, we're here uh, to do that. And there, let me say, there are other great organizations. Esperanza with Luis Cortez is a great expert, uh, organization. Carlos Malave is a mainline Protestant who does great work. Alexia Salvatierra at Fuller does great work. And so we, we, we just want to be honest about, we're just one of, of, as the Latin Vulgate says, Jerome translating the gospels, ego vox clamantes and decerto. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness where there are, there are many voices out there. And so we just want to say that. So David, thanks. Gracias a usted. Gracias a usted. Muchas gracias.